Today we are back in the New Testament book of Philippians. If you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, we took a break for about a month due to Palm Sunday and Easter and some other things going on, but today we're back in the book of Philippians in, in our series here. And in our passage today, which you see will be uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, we're going to read some words from Paul about a certain condition of the heart and mind that seems to be, for most of us, very elusive. We know it's a good thing. We know it's a commendable thing, I think. And as a result of us knowing that it's a good thing, we do seem to want it uh, to a certain extent, but most of us just don't ever seem to get there. What I'm talking about, you see it in the title, is this mindset, this attitude of contentment. Contentment. So let's read the passage here and talk about this concept of contentment because that's what this passage is about. And it's just my prayer for all of us to see the beauty and the desirability and the godliness of Christian contentment. Okay, let's read it together. You follow along as I read it out loud. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's where we'll stop for today. So first, let's just, let's just walk through the text, and then we'll bear down, so to speak, on this idea of contentment that Paul's talking about. So first, just notice with me in verses 10 and 11 that the Philippians had helped Paul with his financial situation. They sent him a financial gift, and we can see that... That's what they did, clearly in what follows after this that we did not read. The Philippians had sent this man to Paul named Epaphroditus. They sent Epaphroditus to where Paul was being held in prison, and they brought Paul some gifts. He says in verse 18, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, just so we kind of understand what's going on there, most people think that Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison. And Roman prisons are different than our prisons. Uh, they don't provide for your needs in these Roman prisons. You are entirely at the mercy of your friends and family. To bring you things. And if you didn't have anyone to take care of you, well, you just wouldn't last very long. And the Philippian believers, they sent Paul a gift to help him survive there. And he tells them he was glad to receive it. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And then he does clarify just a little bit in case any of them might take that the wrong way. He did not mean that statement as in, it's about time y'all helped me out. He didn't mean it that way because in verse 11 it says, you were indeed concerned for me. It wasn't that you weren't concerned. It was that you had no opportunity, he says. So they never stopped caring about Paul. They never stopped being concerned for his well-being. They just didn't have the opportunity to help until then. And we don't know all the details or reasons behind that. Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe, maybe they didn't have the means to help until then. 
Maybe they didn't even know exactly where Paul was being held until this point. We don't know all the reasons, but now they had the opportunity and the means. And so they sent Paul this monetary gift, and he rejoices over it. He thanks God for it. And just with that, we see this truth demonstrated for us here, don't we? That God often provides for his people through his people. Can you identify with that? Have you been helped by God's people in any way throughout your life? I hope you have. I hope our church will be able to do that for one another and grow in that area. What a blessing it is to be part of the family of God. In the family of God, we have, you know, we have people that care about us. At least that's the way it should be, right? And in the case of the local church, if there's this well-developed closeness and sense of community in a body of believers, there's going to be people who know us well enough to know what we need, when we need it, and God will help us through them. And it might not even be money. It might be encouragement or prayer or just being with us in some tragedy or trial. The body of Christ cares for one another. Jesus said to his disciples, didn't he? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He said that in John 13, 35. So think about that. The love that we have toward one another is one of the biggest witnesses to those around us that we indeed love and follow Jesus. So let me just encourage you with something today. If you want to grow in the Lord, you're, you're, let's say you're just stagnating a little bit. How do I take the next step? How do I grow a little bit more in the Lord? Let me give you some practical ways of doing that. Just based on these first two verses, the idea that comes to mind from these first two verses. Here's just a few. Be around your brothers and sisters in Christ as much as possible. That's the first step. Be around them. Talk before the service. Talk after the service. Go get coffee or lunch together. Have each other in your homes. Share what's going on in your life. Share what you've been reading in the scriptures. Share what you've been learning. Share what God is doing in your sphere of influence. Share about your kids. Share your prayer needs with one another. When there's that sense of community among God's people, many other things that the scriptures tell us to do will organically already be happening when there's this community that loves one another. So... I encourage you to take those steps, okay? So, having thanked them for their gift, Paul takes the opportunity to bring up this subject of contentment. And he kind of brings it up as a little side note almost through, through this clarification that he's making. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, he says, verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's thankful for their gift, no doubt. He's rejoicing over it, but he says, it didn't change my mindset. And Paul is like that, like this loving spiritual father to them. And he takes every opportunity he can to teach them something. And here he teaches them about contentment. I have learned something very important. He says, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. Look at verse 12. He says that. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And we'll get to the secret here in just a moment, but let's just make sure we follow what he's saying here. He's clarifying for us what this contentment is that he's speaking of. It is not maybe how 
how we give things a bad name or a bad connotation sometimes in our own mind. We say, well, contentment, that sounds like complacency. That's not what he's talking about. And he's not talking about a lack of productivity. When you're content and just sitting around, ah, like at, right after you eat the Thanksgiving dinner, ah, you're feeling fat and happy. I'm, con- I'm content, right? Sometimes we say it that way. But that's not what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. He's learned how to live in both extremes with nothing and with plenty and being okay with either one. That's contentment. It's learning how to live on a full stomach or an empty growling stomach with plenty or with little. So contentment, according to Paul, is just this, it's this internal satisfaction which does not demand changes in external circumstances. An internal satisfaction that does not demand changes in external circumstances. It's learning to live in all situations, poverty or riches. So, if we're seeing already, this contentment, it rises above circumstances. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. I am content. Is what Paul says. So let's see what we can learn about this kind of contentment this morning. First of all, what is contentment? What is it? We kind of already defined it a little bit, but how about we bring in another theologian who can help us from church history? Just so we don't think ourselves to be the only ones, you know, they're Down through church history, the Holy Spirit has indwelt His people, right? And He's taught them, many past brothers and sisters, He's taught them many things. And we can learn from them, right? What the Spirit has shown them, we can learn through their writings, for instance. So here's one I'd like to introduce you to. His name is Jeremiah Burroughs. Has anybody ever heard of Jeremiah Burroughs? No? He was a Puritan preacher in England in the early 1600s. And he played a prominent role, for for you history buffs, he played a prominent role in the famous Westminster Assembly, which was a group of theologians who came together, and among other things, they wrote the famous Westminster Confession of Faith. And they also wrote... Uh, the shorter and longer catechisms, the Westminster Catechism, that's still used today by many people to teach their children or to teach one another biblical doctrine. And those that participated in that are known sometimes as the Westminster Divines. He was one of those. And he wrote a book, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs did, which is now a classic. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I would highly recommend that book, by the way. I checked two days ago. It's $8 on Amazon. Okay? Not too much. Maybe not as easy of a read as a modern novel or something like that, but sometimes you got to work a little harder for the good stuff, right? But in that book, Burroughs gives us a more meaty definition of what Christian contentment is. Here's his definition. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. Let's just unpack that just a little bit. First, he calls it sweet. It's a sweet frame of spirit. You say, what does that mean? Well, just think of the opposite of sweet, sour, bitterness, 
You know, have you known any sour people? Bitter people? <laughs> Maybe we've been one before. But content people have a sweetness about them. That's one thing. It's a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. The Puritans used the word gracious to mean that it was given to you by God's sovereign grace, okay? In this case, contentment is a frame of spirit that God graciously gives to you. And what does he say about this frame of spirit? He says it, it freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. In other words, it trusts God as a good father in every situation and condition we find ourselves in. Just think about how the way God governs his world. Whatever situation you're in, he brought you there. And contentment is submitting to what God has brought about in our lives. He's the wise, sovereign father who oversees and ordains all of our circumstances. Contentment has to do with that a lot. It has to do with realizing who's behind this situation. We didn't come to it by chance or destiny or fate or some other word like that. It happened because our good and kind Father ordained that it would happen. And that reality, it really changes everything, especially as it relates to contentment. And when we submit to that truth, when we see that, we're on our way to having true contentment in our heart. Now, much more could be said there, but for time's sake, we'll just move on from what it is to this. How do we get it? Some of these flow in overlap, but notice what Paul says in verse 11 again. Verse 11. In the second part of the verse, he says, For I have learned. Christian contentment has to be learned. It's a gift from God, yes, but he gives it to us by teaching us. Another way to get at my point here is to say, contentment doesn't come naturally to us. Our natural tendency is what? Want, want, want to never be satisfied with our situation. The tendency for us is to think that uh, is just to never be satisfied with what we have, to think that we are not getting all of the good that we deserve. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7 says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied get 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 but never satisfied that's us isn't it does that hit home with you because it does me Charles Spurgeon said this you say if I had a little more I should be very satisfied he says you make a mistake if you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Contentment isn't about having a certain amount of money in mind, for instance, or a certain goal in mind that when you finally reach it, then you say, then I'll be content. Contentment is being satisfied with what you have right now doesn't mean we can't work toward getting a, a better job or improving our situation in some way if the Lord gives us the opportunity, but a content person doesn't do those things to become content. They already are. They realize that if they, if they are never able to improve their situation or get more money or get a bigger house or a better car or whatever... They've got everything they need already. They're already 
content. They've learned to live with their lot in life, whether it be little or much. And this is something that is learned by us. Now, the culture around us, they surely don't help us learn this contentment, do they? The culture, society at large, if you want to call it that, fights against contentment at just about every turn. Just think about it. Advertisements capitalize on our discontentment. They're, and they're everywhere. You can't avoid advertisements. Go on a website, they're there. Watch TV, they're there. Listen to the radio, they're there. Drive down the interstate, there's the billboards, they're there. You can't escape them. And they lure us with what we don't have and try to make us think that we need that. And social media is another area that can cultivate discontentment in our hearts if we let it. You know, it just shows the best parts of everyone's life, doesn't it? And we easily become disillusioned with what we don't have and what others do have. Everyone looks like they're just living this wonderful life. Why can't I have that? In reality, though, that's, that's just all a mirage. Everyone's got problems. Every one of us has problems. They're just very easy to hide online. And part of the way that we combat that is just to realize what's happening and don't let it deceive you, okay? The business world does the same thing. It tells us we got to... Go to the next ladder. Don't be satisfied until you reach the top. You got to reach that ideal place, that ideal position, that ideal salary. And goals and dreams and things like that can be a good thing, but isn't there a, there is a fine line between good goals and dreams and making an idol out of getting there. The culture would just have us to believe, make as much money as possible. Do whatever you have to do to make as much money as possible, because that is what will make you content. And that means that most of your time and your energy should be spent trying to do that, because that's what's going to bring you happiness, supposedly. But it doesn't take too much research or too much looking into that fact to see that it's false. How many people have made it there, so to speak, and they say, is this it? They're not happy. They're not content. Those things are not the way, are they? But that's how we're constantly being pulled into thinking wrongly about contentment. It's pulling at us everywhere, this world system is. And advertisements are not sinful, but I'm just saying there's a subtle thing about them that will cultivate discontentment in your heart. It does it to all of us. But the point we're making here, the larger point, is contentment is learned. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. And the world is surely not going to help us learn it. We have to find contentment outside of this world it's got to be learned from somewhere else now Paul if we think about him he was put in all sorts of positions and circumstances wasn't he when he said he learned how to be brought low he really means that he had been very low he was imprisoned multiple times he was beaten multiple times. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned and left for dead. You name it, he suffered. He suffered tremendously. He, he says in 2 Corinthians, and you can read 2 Corinthians 11 and see all these things that he lists out that he'd been through. But it says he'd been without the basics as well. Food, water, shelter. He'd been without all of that. So truly, he had been low and on the other hand at times he had also had an abundance but all those situations 
for him just served as the classroom for contentment. We gain contentment by learning it. So that's how we get it through learning, but where does it come from? Perhaps a better way to ask it would be, who does it come from? Paul said he had learned the secret. Look with me. In, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Well, what's the secret? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that verse is probably the most misused verse in the entire Bible. <laughs> we see Philippians 4.13 put on football cleats and tattoos. And we see it used for all sorts of reasons, from scoring a touchdown to getting a promotion to achieving whatever dream the person had in their mind, even justifying doing sinful things. But those things are not what Paul is talking about. This verse is talking about the God-given strength to be content in every circumstance. It's not about, this verse is not about achieving some physical feat. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even set the record for this long jump that I'm about to do. No, it's not about physical feats or character goal, uh, excuse me, career goals. It's about God giving us the strength to joyfully live in any circumstance that He puts us in, whether it's poverty or plenty. And so, where does it come from? Contentment ultimately comes from God through His. Strength. It is not something that we drum up with our own willpower. It's given to us as we learn, from the last point, as we learn to rely on God's strength and not our own. We won't make it on our own. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And until we learn that, we won't be content. We're all in the process of learning that. I know I am. Still very much in process. Now, maybe you're here today or you're listening to this and you're not a Christian. And I'd like to address you for a moment. You're hearing this sermon about contentment and how contentment comes from God. And I just want to make it as clear as possible for you and for all of us, really, we can all benefit from this. So perhaps like most of us, uh, you felt like if you just got a little bit more whatever, fill in the blank, you'd be happy. You'd be content. And you felt the pull of the world like I've been talking about to do, 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 get, get, get. And maybe it's left you feeling the exact opposite of content. You feel very discontent. And what I just want to tell you this morning is that true contentment cannot come to you unless Christ first does a work in your heart. So, here's the bottom line. We are created with eternity on our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 in verse 11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. If you've ever wondered why more power or money or whatever doesn't ever seem to make you content or as happy as you thought it would, that's why. You were made for something bigger and better than money and power and all the rest. And if you've ever wondered why that new relationship didn't make you as happy as you thought, that's why. That new job, that new position, that new raise, that new house, that new car. 
Those things will let us down ultimately because we weren't created for those things. And we try to get happiness and contentment in all the wrong places. God is the one who created us. And let's say, what do you say we ask him what will make us most satisfied? He knows us. He made us. And he created you and I to have fellowship with him. And that's what's going to complete us. That's what's going to make us most satisfied and content. If we have true fellowship with God. And the bad news is in our default condition, we can't have fellowship with God. Here's what the Bible says about our condition. It it teaches in the very first chapter of Genesis. That's the very first book of the Bible that God made us in his image. And we rebelled against him. We sinned. And that severed the good relationship that we had with God. And since he is holy and we are not, we deserve his wrath and anger and judgment. That's actually our biggest problem. God is holy, and we are not. And there's the massive problem. Because if we were to meet him in that state, we could not expect a very good outcome for ourselves. And what we actually deserve for sinning against this infinitely good and kind God is to spend eternity in hell. That would be just. That would be fair for God to give us exactly that, wouldn't it? The Bible says that even though the wages of sin is death, it says also the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, in the midst of that massive problem, he made a way for us to be right with him. Here's how. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived this perfect life that none of us could ever have lived. He was totally sinless. And then he went to the cross and let men kill him there. Little men made of dust killed the creator. But he let them do it. He said, I lay down my life. They didn't exactly understand the significance of what they were doing. And even though they were doing something very evil, they were doing exactly what God had ordained since the world began. It was his mission all along to do this. God sent Jesus to be the Lamb of God to pay for the sins that we committed. And Jesus drank every last drop of the anger of God against our sin. He took that all on himself at the cross. That's why Jesus says, it is finished right before he dies. He's saying the debt has been paid in full. All the wrath for your sin drained to the very last drop. Fully satisfied. Mission complete, we might say. And then he didn't just die and stay dead like any other human does. He actually rose from the dead three days later. Proving that he was who he says he is. The very son of God. And the resurrection was God's stamp of approval that he was pleased with what Jesus had done in his atoning work for sin. And now anybody who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith will be totally forgiven of all their sin and will spend eternity with God in heaven. No more wrath to face. No more condemnation. That's what we call the gospel. The good news about what God has done through Jesus to rescue us from sin and all its penalty. So, regarding this message today, yes, you can have contentment, but really not in the state that you're in now, 
if you're an unbeliever, because discontentment is not actually your biggest problem. That's just a symptom of the problem. Your biggest problem, and it's all of our biggest problem, is our sin problem. So you will never have contentment without Christ taking care of your sins first. How could you? Think about that. How can you be content while you're like a little spider dangling over one little piece of spider web over the fires of hell? I think that spider's pretty content on the end of that line. If he is, he's a dumb spider, right? That's what we all think, though. That's what we all think. I'm okay. Perhaps God is showing someone today, I'm not okay. And I I just want to make sure you're prepared to meet your maker. We want you to be right with God. And we've gathered here today to worship him for what he's done for us. And we're glad you're here. If you're here, someone that's unbelieving or listening to this. We're glad you're hearing this good news. It's still good news to us Christians as well. We need to hear it regularly. So if you have questions about the gospel, questions about how to be saved, talk to a Christian today. They will help you. I invite you, even in your heart right now, come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Christ and he'll save you. He will do that. And it won't solve all your problems in this life. In fact, it might create a few for you. But any problems and hardships that we're going to go through here are just going to pale in comparison to the gain that we get through having Christ as our Savior. That's my plea to you today. Believe on Christ and be saved. So contentment comes from God and it's something that's learned from him and given by him listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 9 and 10 I'll put it up on the screen here Paul is speaking here of a thorn in the flesh and he's asked God to take it away from him but God never would take it away and he says this This is Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. And we find there that same truth reinforced that that contentment isn't found in our own strength. It's actually found in Christ's power working through our little weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong, he says. Why is that? Because Christ is here with me and his power is resting upon me, he says. Listen to another passage, Hebrews 13, 5. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews there is saying the reason we can be content with what we have is because we have Christ and he will never leave. He will always be with us. What is money compared to Christ? So back to Philippians 4.12, the reason Paul could say that he had learned contentment in any and every circumstance is because Christ was with him in any and every circumstance. And the same is true for you if you're a Christian. He's with you in any and every circumstance. I quoted 
Charles Spurgeon earlier. I'll quote him again. I, I actually agree with uh, Mark Dever when he says, he said something like, I don't think the brother ever wrote a paragraph that wasn't edifying. He said that about Charles Spurgeon. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon again, though. He says of, of this truth we were just talking about, how easy it must be for a man to be contented. Easy. How easy it must be for a man to be contented when he knows that God has promised to be with him in all circumstances and at all times. I love that. When we're not content, we probably either we have forgotten that or we have diminished the value of that. May God make it a reality to us. God is with me. He is my good and kind shepherd. He will never leave me. What a thought that is. So, we've kind of talked about what contentment is, how we get it. We learn it through trusting Christ, and we get it from God's strength working in us. Here's something further. What does God's strength actually enable us to do? In other words, how does he bring that about? You know, he, we can pray, Lord, make me more content. That's a good prayer to have. But how is it that he actually works that out in our lives? He doesn't really just, he doesn't usually zap us with contentment and we just can't explain it. He actually works through some means to teach us that. That's how he typically answers the prayer. And here's where I think uh, Jeremiah Burroughs helps us so much. As we looked at it earlier, the way that he'll work contentment in us is that he'll cause us to trust in God's sovereignty. Let's look at his definition again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. Contentment comes as we submit to and actually delight in God's providence. Another Puritan preacher named John Flavel, he wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence. And um, if you don't really know what the word providence means, you could kind of define it just generally as God's providence is the way that he sovereignly governs his universe in every detail for the good of his children. That's God's providence. And in that book, John Flavel says this. Do not show the least discontent at the lot and portion providence carves out to you. Oh, that you would be well pleased and satisfied with all its appointments. Say... The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage, Psalm 16, 6. Surely that is best for you which providence hath appointed. And one day you yourselves will judge it so to be. Wow. If we really come to understand that God is sovereignly orchestrating every detail of our lives, and that He's working all those things for the good of those that love Him, as Romans 8 says, then we'll come to see that whatever our lot is, whether it's abundance or lack, we can be content because it's exactly what He has lovingly given us, has lovingly given us for that time. Now, again, he may give us the means to improve our station and get out of a certain situation, right? Paul was very happy to receive their gift. But he clarified it wasn't the gift that made him content. He was content beforehand because his contentment wasn't suspended until his condition improved. His contentment was based on God's presence and power in his life. You know, we sing that song, that wonderful song, Whate'er my God ordains is right. 
and it hits heavily on this subject. One line says, I take content what he hath sent. I take content what he hath sent. That's it right there. And we must come to see that since God is truly sovereign, he works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, then we can trust him and rely on his strength in plenty or loss, good times and bad, so to speak. He'll strengthen us to face whatever he's dealt to us. That's where the rubber meets the road with our doctrine. Do we really believe what we say we believe, right? The doctrine of God's sovereignty is essential to gaining true contentment. I've got lots of quotes today and, and many that I don't even have time to share with you. Um, but I've just, it's partly to show that there are other believers that have said the same things, making that connection between God's sovereignty and our contentment. Thomas Watson said, The wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees better for us to abound, we will abound. If he sees better for us to want, we will want. Be content to be at God's disposal. If we don't believe that God is ordering all these little details, we'll most certainly find ourselves in a state of discontent, always trying to put ourselves into whatever we think would be our ideal position, our ideal state, always striving for more, always praying for more as if God hasn't given us enough. Pastor Andy Davis makes this statement, again, relating God's sovereignty to our contentment. He says, if you don't embrace wholeheartedly and in a robust manner the doctrine of God's providence which is his sovereign control over the tiniest details of life, Christian contentment will elude you. And that is where knowing our Bibles and studying doctrine really helps. For instance, read your Bible and make a note every time you notice God sovereignly orchestrating something to happen. And before long, your entire Bible, it seems, will be marked up. It is absolutely eye-opening the level of detail that he is concerned with in his providence. And to know that it bolsters our faith and it nurtures contentment in our hearts. Just knowing that our circumstances, the devil isn't responsible for our circumstances. What a scary thought that would be. The devil's not governing our lives. Chance is not governing our lives. Fate is not governing our lives. God is governing our lives, and he is a good and kind father to us. So next time you hear Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Think contentment. That's what the verse is about, giving us the strength to be satisfied with whatever God's good hand gives us. Let me close with this. I recently went to, many of you know, I went to the Together for the Gospel conference. T4G, they call it. And I didn't want to take a lot of luggage. Uh, I packed pretty light. And I didn't need a lot because the trip was very short, just a few days. And I was, as I was preparing for this message, I got to thinking, we can kind of think of life like that. It's just a short trip. How much do we really need? Certainly we don't need as much as we think, right? The world would tell us the opposite. They would say, life is short, get all you can. But the eternal perspective is, life is short. Whatever will get me from here to there is enough for me. And if I have Christ, that's all I need. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand.
Before we go in just a moment, we'll sing that together. But for now, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage in your word that so potently reminds us of what contentment is and where it comes from. Teach us, Lord, to rest in Christ and what we have in him. Thank you for making us right with you through what Christ has done on our behalf. And if anyone has heard me today who hasn't put their faith in the Lord Jesus, Lord, I ask you to draw them, bring them to yourself. May your gospel suddenly be sweet in their ears. And may they run to Jesus for their rescue. We thank you also, Lord, for your sovereign care for us. Help us to rest in that care. What you bring us to, you will strengthen us for. Help us just to rest our heads on the soft pillow of your sovereignty. Knowing that all things are from your good and kind hand. Help us to learn contentment, Lord. And in that, being content, Lord, we'll be utterly different from the world. And may they be compelled to come and ask about the reason for the hope that is in us. And may we share with them this one who has made us content in the ultimate sense. This one who is our portion and our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.